Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes this week. And the question is, what could you possibly follow up three weeks on Revelation with on the podcast? And uh, that was a difficult question going in. Nothing really packs the same punch in terms of the depth and breadth of these overviews like the book of Revelation does. But I think this week we've picked a worthy successor to the book of Revelation. In fact, something in the very same vein. Right. I think uh, we've picked basically the Revelation of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has, of course, a lot of messianic prophecies, but it has those same kind of apocalyptic visions, carries the same symbolism, and it has several of them. So the book of Zechariah is not very well known, but I hope after this podcast, you will be uh, motivated to read it and read it in the same vein as you did the book of Revelation. Yeah, I would say almost everything we said about the book of Revelation applies in terms of how to read it applies to Zechariah. And in some ways, if you think about the big four books that are apocalyptic, it would be Daniel, most of Ezekiel, Zechariah, and the book of Revelation. And there are uh, there are other right. little apocalyptic moments in certain places, but these are your four big apocalyptic prophetic books. And so almost everything we said about learning to have scripture interpret scripture, looking at these visions as images, and um, no one is arguing for a chronological view of Zechariah or even in Daniel in certain places. Right. But just remembering that these visions are related sometimes thematically and not chronologically at the way that some people are, are uh, accustomed to reading in Revelation. That's a great reminder, and I love the way you phrased that, is they're related thematically, not chronologically. That's probably, in fact, just a good uh, thing to keep in your back pocket as you read the Bible, because some parts of the Bible don't want to be chronological. They want to be emphasizing certain themes. So that's a great Mm -hmm. point, Cole. Now, Zechariah is one of my favorite Old Testament books, and part of that is because it is unknown. There's a lot of fresh ground to to plow here because you don't hear very many sermons on Zechariah. You don't see many Bible studies on Zechariah. In some ways, it's interesting because everybody wants to study Revelation. If you ask somebody, what what book of the Bible should we study? Revelation always comes up. And Daniel, to a certain extent, is a really popular Old Testament book because it has those great narratives and it has the prophecy. There's a lot of intrigue. It makes me wonder why more people don't want to study Zechariah because uh, it, it has less to do with predictive history and more with a, a spiritual understanding of history. But the visions are just captivating in this book. And so when you read through, you get a sense of some of the controlling images and metaphors for what God is doing throughout the Bible. So we're going to be introduced to several things that whether you've ever read the book of Zechariah or studied it or not, you're going to say, that sounds really familiar because it is a controlling metaphor, a common repeated metaphor in the Bible. And it has its origin in Zechariah, which a lot of people don't know. You'll you'll just be surprised. Oh, that's from Zechariah. I I had no idea, but I've heard that before, or I've heard that quoted before in the New Testament. You know, the book of Zechariah, and uh, by the way, one of his contemporaries was Haggai. And I think we've already done an overview of the uh, book of Haggai, but 
the, they were contemporaries and it's important to put them in their context. So if you just remember the sweeping history, most of the prophets, or I don't know if I'd say most, but the prophets you're most familiar with were speaking to Israel and or Judah before the Babylonian exile in 586 BC. So if you think about Isaiah, you think about uh, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and a number of the prophets were warning them, return to God or God's judgment will come in the form of the Babylonians. And so that happened, 586 BC. They go off to Babylon. Then geopolitically, the Persians conquer the Babylonians in 539 BC. So think about 586 to 539, 47 years later, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians. The Persians are not really into exporting people from their homeland. And in fact, Cyrus, the Persian king, says, you Jews, if you want to, can leave this Babylonian land or what used to be Babylon and uh, is now Persian uh, district. You can go back to Jerusalem. You can go back and resettle your land if you want to. And so in 538, the year after the conquest, there's a group that does go back. Zerub Babel, you'll meet him uh, in the book, and Joshua, the high priest. Zerub Babel becomes the administrative leader, and Joshua becomes the priest, and they take a group of Israelites back. Well, this is the era. As they come back into the land, they start rebuilding their homes and their farms and rebuilding the temple. This is the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And so some of the things you'll see in here are God speaking to this group of people through Zechariah saying, you remember what happened in the former prophets and how your fathers, meaning the previous generations, didn't listen to me. And now God is saying, I've brought you back. I'm going to rebuild things. And so just trying to put Zechariah into the context of when is he talking and to whom is he talking? What would you add to that, Cole? Yeah, the other two. So there, there is a trio of prophets that you need to keep in mind and read together. So that would be the last three books of the Old Testament. As you mentioned, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are all post-return prophets. So after the Israelites return, there's a group that goes early and there's a group that goes late. They, These three prophets are speaking into that era of Israelite history. And the other two books to fold in would be the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These, these right. two books are talking from a narrative standpoint about what's going on, Ezra being the earlier, Nehemiah being the later, but contemporary with these people. In fact, a lot of what we know about Zechariah comes from those books. So Ezra, for example, Ezra 5.1 says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. We get a little bit of a conflicting um, information, piece of information here at the beginning of the book of Zechariah, it says that Zechariah's father was Berechiah, who was the son of Ido. A lot of times you'll see this in some of the other genealogies, son of just means descendant of. So sometimes you can name right. the more prominent people in the family and say son of, son of, but you're covering two or three generations. So this is really not a big issue, you know, is Ido his father or grandfather? Will we get the same information both places about who Zechariah is? In Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 4, we get a, a, a hint that Ido is likely a priest. And so I think it's likely because of some of the contextual clues in Zechariah, namely his relationship with the high priest Joshua, that Zechariah is from a priestly family. 
So Ido is likely a priest. Zechariah is probably a priest. We see Ezekiel is also from a priestly family and is a prophet. So these things do overlap in uh, a couple of common places in the Bible. And then he's probably a person of influence. So if he's coming back in a priestly family after the exile, he, like I said, he has access to the high priest, Joshua, and uh, he seems to know the people who are in power in Israel. It's just a reminder that you have people who are in no form of earthly power. They just come out of nowhere, prophesy what God has told them to do. And sometimes God picks people that are in the royal household, like Isaiah likely is related to the kings of uh, Judah. And then you p- get people that are in priestly families that are in positions of power, like Ezekiel and Zechariah, who are prophesying as well. And, and God has his reasons. You know, you think the 12 disciples, not very powerful by the world's standards. The Apostle Paul, very powerful from Jewish standards, both called right. to preach the gospel. And Zechariah is one of those people that used his influence and his proximity and his standing culturally to speak the word of God to God's people. So we can gather a little bit more background information than with a lot of these prophets just by knowing the family, the the time, the things that are going on, because we can put Ezra and Nehemiah together with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi to get a picture of Israelite life for those who return to Judah from the exile. Exactly. Well, Zechariah helps us out because in the beginning of the book, chapter one, he begins by dating uh, his ministry, if you will. He says in the eighth month, eighth month, in the second year of Darius, uh, that's a Persian king, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And we can date that to October of 520 BC. So October of 520 BC, simply because in secular dating, we have a pretty good idea of when these Persian kings ruled based on inscriptions and history that they left independent of the Bible. So by putting that in, Zechariah helps us to date this. And just so you know what's going on at this time is they are rebuilding the temple and Haggai has urged them to rebuild the temple. And the temple is finished five years later, by the way, in 515. So as the book opens, it's 520 BC, Zechariah speaking to them. And very quickly, Cole, he gets into these what we call apocalyptic visions. And when I say apocalyptic, I just mean visions of that kind, of that highly symbolic kind. And so how many visions do we see? You count seven or do you count eight? There is a little bit of dispute as to how many visions there are. So if you if you're looking at the ESV, for example, they're going to give you a little bit of help in what they think. And so in the section headings, you have, let's see here, they have eight visions in chapters one through six. And some people think that you only have seven. The reason for that is some people uh, believe that chapter three, verse one. Uh, all the way down, really the whole chapter, but especially the first five verses. Is this a vision or is this something that really happened? So is he actually seeing something uh, in the spiritual sense, these night visions, or is he really experiencing something that happens? And I would probably tend toward it being a vision as opposed Mm -hmm. to being a real life Uh, experience that he had, but it really doesn't make a big difference. Seven is nice because it's convenient to have seven things, but in this case, we might actually have eight. And so the the organizing principle is you have an intro in chapter one, verses one through seven. And then after that, you have the night visions that begin 
really you get the first one starting in uh, chapter one, verse, verse seven or verse eight. In verse eight, he says, I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. This will immediately flag two things coming off of our Revelation podcasts. Number one, the I saw is a common formula for prophetic visions. Again, here, this is in Hebrew, Revelation, it's in Greek. So the words we're using there aren't the same, but the sequence of thought is the same. You might hear when people talk about Zechariah, a lot of times you hear him talk about the night visions. And so these are some kind of mix between a vision and a dream in the night that he's seeing. And then secondly, behold, a rider on a right on a red horse is something that you'll recognize immediately from the book of Revelation, because we see the opening, one of the opening visions of four horses that are in the book right. of Revelation. So there's a significant similarity between a lot of the things that we're seeing in Zechariah, both in form and in content. He is in the same form as John, an apocalyptic prophet. And he's actually seeing some of the same things that John sees in the book of Revelation. So starting in seven or really starting in eight, we get the visions and that's going to go all the way through chapter six. And uh, they're pretty short here. These are not as extended as they are in the book of Revelation, but they are really powerful visions. Yeah, agreed. I think, uh, you kind of divide to me you kind of divide the book in sort of in half you get these visions in the beginning and then starting around chapter nine you see a different theme you see some oracles uh, judgment on the enemies uh, of israel you know one of the things to think about why is god speaking these things to this group of people at this time obviously this is useful for all history but why then they had two major concerns. They're very poor people going back to the land, come to find out other people have moved in. So they're trying to reestablish themselves. Their city, Jerusalem, has no wall around it. It's totally been demolished. So they're sort of living amongst the ruins, if you will, and trying to eke out a living on the land, trying to rebuild the temple in some it won't be glorious, but it'll be, you know, a some kind of place to worship and reestablish themselves as Jewish people, as God's people in this land. And so there are two concerns for this. One is, uh, has God forgotten us? In other words, he exiled us. Now we've been able to come back. He said he'd bring us back, but is he still with us? And so they need to hear from God. Is there hope? Is God with us? And do we have a future? And the second thing is the enemies, they're around them, particularly Edom, which is a kingdom in the south, pretty strong at this time and kind of encroaching on this area. And so the Edomites are, are pretty hostile to them, like we don't want you here. And we, we, you know, we may want this land and they feel very weak and unprotected and very much threatened by the people around them. So they have a lot of insecurity. They're very poor, threatened by the people around them and wondering do we have a hope from God? And these visions begin, I think, to reassure them that God does have a plan for them. He does have hope. And in fact, he has hope of, for all mankind. You know, these visions encompass even more than this group of people. So uh, what visions stand out to you of, of the ones here, Cole? I think one of the things that's, that immediately pops out is just how related this book is to several others. As we've been talking about, you can look forward to Revelation, but you can, all, you, you can also look backwards. And in some, sometimes the commentators will identify Zechariah as the little Isaiah. 
because there's a lot of similarity between the things that he's saying about repentance, encouragement, like you're talking about. This is a time of discouragement in the history of Israel, looking forward to what God might do to restore them is another big theme in in Isaiah. So right. if, you, if you just read through here kind of casually, you'll start to see things and say, wow, that just sounds a ton like Isaiah. And it's possible if you remember in context that he actually is quoting and relying on Isaiah. Um, mm-hmm. Same thing with the with with Micah. Micah is someone who's a contemporary of Isaiah. They have several overlaps. The easiest place to see this is in chapter three, verse ten. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor and come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is that famous prophecy that's in Isaiah chapter two. It's also in Micah chapter four. It's the most quoted passage in Micah chapter four among the founding fathers. We did that in our overview of Micah. And here he's saying the promise that God spoke through Isaiah and Micah is still true for us, even after the exile, even after we've come back, even after things don't look quite as good as we thought they were going to look, even though we are kind of a crippled and small version of what we used to be, God is still going to fulfill his promises. And so there's a big continuity in these visions. Again, you'll see a vision of a man with a measuring line. Who does that sound like? Well, sounds like the prophecy of Ezekiel at the end of Ezekiel. Sure enough, right. it shows up again in Revelation. A woman, a vision of a woman in a basket is going to be a similar vision to one that we see later in the book of Revelation with some modifications. A flying scroll. I mean, these are just central biblical images. I think chapter three is really a powerful vision of Joshua. And I would point, if you want to dive into this a little bit deeper, I'd point you to Blake Baston's great sermon on this passage at Crossings what a couple of months ago now just about the picture that this presents of the Christian and being in stained filthy garments and being washed white, being accused by Satan and then being vindicated by Christ's sacrifice for us. Um, Otherwise I would say, once you go through a few of these, you start to get one of the major themes of Zechariah, which is that God is not done and he is going to encourage and restore the people who have returned and it must have seemed at that time like that was not going to happen. Exactly. I think that people were wondering, has God forgotten us? They, they think about if you failed, and this is really true in our lives as well. I mean, you failed and you feel like you failed in a big way to be faithful to God. And in the aftermath of that, it's very normal to wonder, even though your head knows better that God is faithful, even when we are not, will he take me back? Am I worthy? Is God still with me? And I think uh, this whole first part is a is a tremendous assurance that even when we are not faithful, when we return to God, He is faithful to keep His promises and to uh, restore us, to redeem us. And again, that's what I love about that picture of Joshua the high priest. And he takes our filthy clothes off of us and puts on clean clothes and says, "You've repented, and I'm still here, and I'm still mm-hmm. faithful." Right. Like the book of Daniel, Zechariah divides his book by timestamps. So in in the book of Daniel, you'll see in different reigns, you're getting different prophecies. Zechariah is doing the same thing. The first two sections are in the second year of King Darius. Here in chapter 7, once you come to the end of these night visions, you get another timestamp. This is in the fourth year of King Darius, and the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is the month of Chislev. So we get a timestamp. We know this is about two years later, about really about 18 months later. 
and uh, he's going to give us another set of visions. Now, this is a little bit confusing because they're going to read very similarly to the night visions. They're a little bit longer, starting in, uh-huh. starting really in chapter nine. And the only reason we're dividing it up this way is because it's at a different time, first of all. But secondly, in chapter nine, he uses a different word for what he's doing. So if you look at chapter nine, verse one, instead of two vision, instead of seven or eight visions that we get in the beginning of the book, now we're getting two oracles, two long oracles. So this will read like the end of the book of Jeremiah. It will read like the oracles against the nations in the book of Isaiah. Starting in chapter nine, going through the beginning of chapter 11, you get kind of your standard poetic oracle about repentance and returning and judgment. And then you get another oracle starting in chapter 12, where he says the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. He's going to go down again there. You're going to get something that seems a lot more like a vision than an oracle, but the word is different. And so that gives us a hint as to how we might outline these sections. But before we get to the two oracles, we have this middle section in chapter seven and eight. And this is a little bit hard to know what to do with uh, in terms of classifying it. These are really like miniature sermons almost. Right. Uh, and so we should read these as kind of exhortations to the people of Israel about what God requires from them and what they should be doing. And this is where you get some of the really powerful and encouraging sections of the book is where you get the reminders of what it is God has for these people. And so if you think about it, the book is fairly balanced with night visions at the beginning, two sermons in the middle about what God requires of his people, Uh and then two longer oracle visions at the end, which are showing the future of what God's going to do for the people of Israel. What do you take away from chapter seven and eight? Yes, seven and eight are a reminder uh, to me, uh, here's here's a passage in seven that really resonates with me. It's uh, chapter seven, verse eight. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, and this is quoting God, thus says the Lord of hosts, I want you to render true judgments. In other words, be just, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Now, this is what the prophets before the exile were saying. And if you go, if you remember those prophets, you go back and read them, you'll say, you'll see a lot of this language. God says, look, you may honor me with your mouth, uh, with your lips, but your hearts are far, far from me. You're not doing justice. And so he's saying, that's what I told them. And listen to this in verse 12. And I hope this is never true of us, but I'm afraid it has been of me in my, in uh, my life at certain times, they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And so, you know, that's a beautiful sermon. Like you're saying, oh, he's reminding them, look what happened. You know, God tried, he pleaded for justice and mercy and that your hearts would be turned to God. But your forefathers uh, literally made their hearts very hard. And so that's one of the things that stands out as a, as a warning through, throughout time. That sermon could preach today as well as it did in 518 B.C. Mm -hmm. One of the things I take away from these middle sections is the comfort that Zechariah offers of people who are severely discouraged. And one of the things that we touched on at the beginning of the episode is they they build a new temple that is really a shanty temple compared to the one they used to have. I mean, Solomon's temple is incredible. 
I mean, gold everywhere, huge. It is the, it is the pinnacle of this part of the world. People come from all over to see it and marvel at it. And it is a wonder of the world. But now they come back and they build a wooden temple that doesn't have all the stuff in it. It's not as good looking. It's not as big. It's nobody cares really about it. And they're really discouraged. And one of the things that Haggai tells them is the glory of the Lord will inhabit this temple just like it inhabited Solomon's temple. Right. And so there's an encouragement that it actually doesn't matter as much the outward beautification of the temple as it does that God dwells there. That's what Solomon's prayer is all about in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, is that God's name and his presence would dwell forever in the temple. And here in chapter 8, verse 3, we get a great reminder of what the whole point of this is. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This is kind of the apex of prophecy that God will come back and be with his people. The city of Jerusalem will be his dwelling place forever. Of course, we're thinking eschatologically, mm -hmm. the new city right. of Jerusalem coming down. But this is the desire of the people, and it's it's just an encouragement that it really doesn't, our human efforts, as long as we're being faithful and doing what God called us to do, the external trappings of what we're doing don't matter nearly as much as God filling what we're doing with his presence. And so Zechariah has a, a word of comfort for these people who are really discouraged. He really does. And as going on in chapter eight, from what you just quoted down in verse 14, I think this is a pretty passage. God said, as I purposed to bring disaster on your forefathers when they provoked me to wrath, so again, now I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not be afraid. And so you do hear those powerful words of comfort of God bringing the people back together and bringing his, uh, his people. And, and he gives them a hope. He gives them a purpose. And he says, my promises are still in effect. They haven't been nullified by your disobedience, which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. At the end of chapter 8 of Zechariah, there's a really interesting passage. Uh, it says that the Lord, of, the Lord of hosts says to his people, people shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from among the nations of every tongue shall, shall take hold of the robe of the Jews saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. This is quote, this is a, a reference to Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 35, but it's quoted, not this exact passage, but the passages in Isaiah are quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where it talks about the church when the church is functioning correctly and using the gifts that we've been given and worshiping God together. People should come into the midst of the church and say, surely God is among you, and they'll turn their lives over to him. So th this vision of other people coming and the result of what Israel was always called to do would be to bless the nations by bringing the nations to God. You get a really cool vision of this that's quoted again in the New Testament. And after that, you get an oracle of judgment. So this is similar to a lot of the other prophets. You get uh, judgment on people who have forsaken the Lord. You get judgment on Israel's enemies. 
prophecies of strengthening for the house of Judah and, and the houses of Joseph. And then in 11, you start to get these visions. And I, I want to just take a minute in chapters 11 through 14 and point out just a few. There are actually more than this, but just a few of the passages that will spark a little bit of uh, connection in the New Testament. So in chapter 11, verse 12, for example, we see that um, we see a mention of 30 pieces of silver. So you have these mm -hmm. sheep traders and uh, they say, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not keep them, and they wait out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. This is obviously going to remind us of uh, the 30 pieces of silver given to Judas for betraying Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 10, we have a vision here of the salvation of the Lord. And it says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Really hard to read this and not think of Christ being pierced on the cross. Right. There's a lot of crucifixion imagery in chapters 12 and 13. Um, well, I'm going to point out a couple of these later, but you're going to see a lot of images that point to Christ. But what's what's even more interesting here is in the book of Revelation, as we just covered in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which a lot of people take as kind of an opening theme verse of Revelation. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. This is a quote of this passage in Zechariah of the one who has been pierced, which in Revelation right. we know is Christ. In chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, we get a picture of the, the most common metaphor in the book of Zechariah is the shepherd king or the shepherd leader. It shows up all over mm -hmm. the place in Zechariah. And it's used in two ways, really. Here, we have it in kind of a negative sense. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. This shepherd image runs through the whole thing, but this is quoted in the New Testament. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, referencing Jesus' death and his followers uh, scattering. Then lastly, in chapter 14, uh, and this is a lesson that we teach when we go to Israel, there's a prophecy about the day of the Lord and the Mount of Olives. And the Lord will go out and fight against the nations on the day of battle, and his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north and the other south, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of mountains will reach to Azal. Then the Lord will come and all of his holy ones with him. Up the east side of Jerusalem, there's a valley, and then there's the Mount of Olives, and this is where Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse. This is also where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and there are several mm -hmm. prophecies, but this one being one of the more prominent, that when the day of the Lord comes and the nations are there, the Mount of Olives will split so that God can come through and return to Jerusalem. And there's actually a couple of interesting things from other traditions, both the Muslims and the Jews, about this prophecy and the way that they believe things are going to happen when this prophecy comes true. 
Well, yes. And when we're standing there, and I think the last time you and I were together, you taught this lesson there. As we're standing on the Mount of Olives, we're looking across the Kidron Valley, and we're looking at what's now the Temple Mount. It has a mosque on it now, but a Temple Mount that Herod built, where this temple was, stood at one time without the, without the big retaining walls. And right below you, massive graveyard on the slopes, all the way down the slopes. And they are Jewish graves. And the, uh, you know, it's the first time I was there, I said, why this spot? And the reason that Jews want to be buried there, it's very expensive to be buried there, is because of this passage. They believe that when the Messiah comes, not believing, of course, that Jesus was the Messiah, these are our modern day Jews, that when the Messiah comes, this prophecy will happen. And when he raises people from the dead, they'll get raised first because they're right there on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Muslims, of course, read this passage and they go, whoa, we don't like this at all. And so when you get across the valley, going right up next to the uh, Temple Mount, there is a gate there. And the Muslims bricked it up so that the Messiah, when he comes, couldn't get in. So there are, there are this passage influenced a lot of people's thinking about what they should do for the Messiah's coming. Yeah, you see several funny things like this in the Holy Land, where you have, on the one hand, God who's going to split, literally split the Mount of Olives in two, but he's going to be stifled by that bricked up door, and he's not going to be able to get in there. <laughs> yeah, you see some things like this that you just have to laugh a little bit. But it's funny how much this has shaped even everyday life now in the expectation right. of the people who are living there. The last thing I'll point out in this section that points to the Messiah is right after this prophecy. And this gets into some of the issues we covered in Revelation about some people believe that the day of the Lord, or at least many of the day of the Lord passages are fulfilled starting at the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection and going until 70 AD. So you have this time mm -hmm. period of the early church between the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of the temple that is a partial day of the Lord, or some people think it's, you know, 70 right. AD is really most of the day of the Lord passages. But what's interesting here is you have the shepherd who has been struck. Again, these visions are not necessarily chronologically sequential, but all in this passage together, you have the shepherd who is struck. You have the one who has been pierced. You have somebody coming in from the Mount of Olives. And then in chapter 14, verse eight, on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the Eastern Sea, half of them to the Western Sea, and it will continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. This is another messianic picture. You know, you think of right. waters flowing out of the new Jerusalem, but you also think of water flowing out of the side of Christ when he's pierced on the cross. And, you know, we right. think that that water ran all the ways to the sea, but there is a spring of living water that's been opened up as, as uh, John talks about in his gospel, there's a spring of living water for anybody who's thirsty that comes from Christ. And uh, again, the last words in revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come to the waters of life. Anybody who's thirsty can come to the waters of life. So again, these are just very strong predominant metaphors and visions for what God is doing through Christ and in the eschaton. Now, the end of the book of Zechariah is a little bit surprising. You get these really powerful visions. You get uh, messianic prophecies. And then you have a picture of an embattled people at the very end. Everyone who survives after this judgment, 
All the nations have come against Jerusalem. They'll go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, which I think is kind of odd. Of all the feasts, we, we tend to think the Passover feast is really big. It's like the chief feast. But in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. a lot of times the Feast of Booths almost surpasses the Passover, and here it certainly does. Right. And any of the families who don't go up to worship, there will be no rain for them. Egypt, if they don't go up, there will be no rain. Um, everybody's got to go up and keep the Feast of Booths. And then on that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And here's the strange line. And there will no longer be a trader, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. People argue about this, but I read this as a prophecy that Jesus fulfills when he comes in and cleanses the temple in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, but not mm-hmm. everybody agrees with that. And, and regardless of whether you do or not, this is kind of a weird way for the book to end. It is. It, it ends. It seems to us like it ends abruptly with no complete closure to it. It's almost, uh, I mean, on the one hand, you have a prophecy that's immediate. He's giving hope to the people of this time in this place that he is still with them. And at the exact same time, you see not just prophecies of the Messiah coming, and we'll point out a couple more of those in a minute, but you also see reminiscences of the book of Revelation, which is the ultimate second coming. You see the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus happening here. And there are just all kinds of little clues here. And Jesus fulfills several of them. I agree with you. I think it's a little, you can't be too dogmatic about it, but I like the idea that Jesus knows this, of course, sees this and enacts it in the temple. One other thing that he does, and if you think now about the water, what you just said about the water, you've got water in the Garden of Eden, you've got this image of the water flowing out of Jerusalem in Zechariah 14, you got this idea of living water flowing up, a spring of water. Think about the simple, simple story of Jesus and the woman at the well, and he says, you know, if I can give you a spring of water welling up from within you. Mm. And, you know, Jesus sees this whole picture, all of time, the great theme, and basically reveals it to this woman who will not realize it's true until the end times, probably. But it's amazing to think that as Jesus walked the earth, he held all of this in his head. He could see what was coming. And uh, I think he he was acting out a lot of these things to mm-hmm. uh, to provide a connection between the book of Zechariah and the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that. I think Jesus is certainly fulfilling consciously and, uh, you know, it's hard to say unconsciously for Christ, but just in the way he lives his life, he didn't set out and say, I'm going to fulfill prophecy today. He basically went and did what God called him to do. And it was consistent with what God had been planning for all of history. And so it it matches up perfectly. The other picture I have here and in the way I think it kind of folds in at the end is to remember the historical context of the book. So the people are discouraged because they're rebuilding a temple that's not like the temple they used to have. And they're wondering if it's ever going to be as glorious. And God says, it's going to be as glorious because I'm going to be there because my name is going mm-hmm. to dwell there and I'm going to return and I'm going to dwell in my temple in Zion with my people. 
And at the end, what you basically have is they don't have a lot of the gold and uh, handcrafted utensils that they used to have in Solomon's temple. And yet on that day, even the bells of the horses are going to be inscribed with holy to the Lord. And these pots are going to be used just like the ones that they used to have. And they're going to make the sacrifices like they used to. And there's no longer going to be a traitor in the house of the Lord that day because God himself is going to return. And that, that actually goes with the whole feast of booths. The feast of booths is a reminder that they wandered until they found a permanent place. And when they found that permanent place, it was because God decided to have his name dwell and his glory dwell in the temple in their midst. And so I think when Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, he's doing more than just kicking the traitors out. He is God returning to his temple. So this prophecy that we see several times in Zechariah is fulfilled in Christ because this is the moment that God returns. Now, his glory is probably returning there, and we see that in Herod's temple. It's a very glorious place. It's a place where Mm -hmm. uh, the people worshiped and sacrificed, but God himself returns when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, goes into the temple, cleanses it, and his ministry there is working outward from the temple and filling the whole earth as we see him sending people out, the Great Commission, and then pictures in the book of Revelation. So this prophecy is fulfilled in Christ as well. Well, one final note, uh, not to beat this to death, but the way this ends, you you made a really good point. They're like, well, we don't have the gold stuff. We don't have all the holy, sacred things in the temple. And God says, I can make the normal stuff you have holy. And that idea of that God makes things holy is also something that Jesus lives out. I mean, if you think about it, when he touches the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean by touching the leper like we would. He Mm -hmm. makes the leper clean. And I think that's another interesting little, little theme that runs through this. And it's one of the beautiful things that everything God touches becomes clean, Mm -hmm. becomes holy. Yeah. And Jesus lived that out as well. Yeah. I think a final takeaway for me in this book is uh in chapter four, verse six, this is my favorite verse in Zechariah. And this is a reassurance to Zerubbabel, who's a main character here and and a forerunner in some ways. He's a messianic figure. He's the leader that's been appointed uh, by the Persians to lead the people of Israel in the rebuilding efforts. And in chapter four, you get these olive trees and lampstands and um, God is basically reassuring them about what he's going to do. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. This is the reassurance of Zechariah, not by might, not by power, not the way the world does things, not by the cleverest or most um, mm-hmm. you know, obvious route, not by earthly treasures or wisdom, but by the spirit of God, he will accomplish his purposes. And that's the true reminder to the people of Israel is God is going to do things in the heart. He's going to do things by his spirit. He's going to do things through his presence, not through all of the other levers that they are tempted to pull and all the other things that they're going to rely on. They have to rely on the Lord. I I agree. And I see echoes of that in second Corinthians 12, where Paul pleads for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And of course, Paul embraced that. And he said, then I'll boast about my weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I think this message 
is you're not as mighty as the people around you. And this is great for us because we don't feel as strong as the culture that's pressing in on us. And we don't feel as powerful, but not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. I think that's probably, if you had a motto for Christians today, this would be a really good one. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.